I'd like you to find John chapter 8. We're actually going to look at the last verse of John 7 and then the first 11 verses in John 8 this morning. There's notes in your bulletin where you can follow along with some of the things we're going to discuss. The series that we're in the middle of is called Believe. We've taken the title of the series from the end of John's gospel, John 20, where he sort of shows his hand and tells us why he wrote all of this in the first place. John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote these things that we would believe the good news about Jesus, and that by believing these things, we would have life, eternal life, and abundant life. This morning, we're in the middle of John 7 and 8. And the events in John 7 and 8, as we've talked about the last few weeks, and we'll continue to talk about next week, these events took place during the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so again, just a little bit of history about this feast. It was celebrated in the fall. It was a week-long celebration. Many, many, many Jewish pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem for this celebration. When they got there, they lived in booths or tents or tabernacles, these little bitty sort of portable temporary huts. And while they lived in this booth or this tabernacle for a week, they were looking back and they were reminding themselves, when God brought us out of slavery in Egypt, we lived in tents. We wandered around in the desert in tents and God took care of us. He provided for us. He fed us. He kept us safe. And God himself lived among us in a tent right there in the middle of the camp. There was the tabernacle where God dwelt among his people. And they're celebrating this in the fall. They're looking back and they're also saying, just like God provided for our ancestors, he has provided for us this fall in another harvest. We have food to eat. And it was sort of similar. I've mentioned this to you before. It was sort of similar to our Thanksgiving celebration where you look back and you thank God for what he's done in the past. You also thank him for where you are in the present. That's what this feast was all about. That's John 7 and John 8. In our passage, we come to one of the most famous stories from the Gospel of John. And at the same time, it's one of the most curious stories in the Gospel of John. On Sunday mornings, when we work through a book of the Bible, we don't skip parts that make us uncomfortable. We don't skip parts that don't fit with our culture. We press through through all the difficult issues and we try to make sense of it. We're going to do that this morning with an interesting passage. And so let me just start with this. There are a number of questions surrounding the pericope of the woman caught in adultery. First of all, I just want you to learn the word pericope. That's a great word, and you should know it. And this week, when somebody asks you about church, you should say, oh, we talked about a most interesting pericope this, this weekend at Emmanuel. It just means story. It's a fancy word for story. And theologians like to use this word because I guess it makes them sound smarter than everybody else, and they're not. But they at least feel for a minute like they've got a leg up on somebody. So we're talking about the pericope of the woman caught in adultery. In my Bible, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. That's the Bible we put uh, in the pews. If you pick up one of the, the pew Bibles or if you have an ESV, you'll notice that above John 7:53, there's a note, and the note says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 8. 
11. And when you look at that passage, there's not just one set of brackets, but there's double brackets. And so the editors, the people who put this together, the people who have studied the best and the oldest Greek manuscripts, the copies of the New Testament, we don't have any of the original books, but we have all of these copies that have been written down and written down and copied. They look at them and they're just letting you know there's an issue here. The oldest manuscripts we have don't have this section of verses. Some of you are old school and you say, I like the King James Version. And you're flipping around in your King James and you're like, it's not there. I don't see the note he's talking about. The King James traditionally does not include this note. It doesn't have this little brackets. It doesn't have anything like that. And different translations approach this issue differently. Some translations take the whole passage and move it down to a footnote. They just put the whole thing down in the footnote, and you just go from the end of 7 to 8, 12, and if you're not paying attention, you may not notice the, the verses are not in the main text, but they're down in the footnote. Some translations just put a footnote, and they want you to look down in the bottom, and at the bottom, they have this little, this little piece of information. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. In seminary... I took a class. I had an elective to take, and the elective, I wanted to take it with my pastor, uh, Bill Cook. I've told you about him before. Dr. Cook, professor at Southern Seminary, he was teaching an elective class on the Gospel of John in Greek. So we're going to study the Gospel of John in Greek, and the class was one of my all-time favorite classes. We just showed up each day. We worked through the Gospel of John in Greek. You had to be ready. You had to be uh, ready to engage and translate and ask questions, and you had to write a paper. And the one paper you had to write in this class was on this passage. And so we come to that passage this morning, and this week as I'm studying, I thought, I wonder how good that paper was I wrote. So I pulled up my paper, and I read through it, and I thought, that's a great paper. That is fantastic. That guy deserves an A. And I read through it, and look, it's a 14-year-old paper. I probably agreed with 97% of it. There was a few little things in there that I thought, eh. I've kind of changed the way I think about it now, 14 years later. But most of what I thought about that, this passage then is what I think about it now. And so I'm just going to be straight with you this morning. I want to describe to you the issues, okay? We're going to talk about the passage itself. But I want to explain to you why the Bible translators have felt it necessary to put this little bracketed piece of information. So here we go. The textual, historical, and contextual evidence suggests that this story was not originally part of John's gospel. And I just want to explain what that means, okay? Stay with me. Don't start walking out. Don't start throwing stuff at me. Let me just explain to you what the facts are. I'll put them up here. The oldest Greek manuscripts, right? The New Testament is written in Greek. We don't have any of the originals, but we have manuscripts that scribes copied down. The oldest ones Almost all of the oldest ones do not include, they omit, John 7, 53, 8 to 11. Some of them, remember there's no verses in the original documents. Verses came much, much, much later. So take verses and chapters out of your brain. This section is just, it's not there. It just goes from the previous section to the next section. Like, it wasn't even part of it. Some of them, some of these old manuscripts, skip it, they omit it, but they leave a space. They don't have spaces in most of these manuscripts, but some of them put a little space there. And it's like the scribe's way of saying, hey, we know there's some question here maybe, and we're not including it, 
but we're putting this space just to clue you in. So there's the evidence of the Greek manuscripts. What about translations? The oldest translations omit the story. So now I'm talking about taking the, the story of the New Testament out of Greek and into other languages, Syriac and Coptic and even Armenian. Most of these translations, when you read the oldest copies that we have, don't have this section of verses. It's just missing. Now, some of you are saying, well, what else is missing? Maybe the Da Vinci Code is right. Maybe they just made the whole thing up. Maybe they just pick and choose. I'm, just, I'm telling you, it's not that. It is not that in, the, in any way, shape, or form. You can trust what is in your English Bible. This is a place there's a little bit of a question, and they're telling you about this question. So the Greek manuscripts, the translations. Next, some manuscripts include it, and this is really interesting, but they don't include it in this spot. And what I'm telling you is there's some ancient manuscripts that have this story, but some of them tack it on to the very end of the Gospel of John. They don't put it here. Same verses, they're just tacked on to the end. Some of the manuscripts we have have the exact same story missing in John in the middle of Luke 21. It shows up in the Gospel of Luke. And you're reading through Luke and you say, well, where, where did this story come from? I don't know where this come from. It just shows up in some of these manuscripts. It's almost as if the scribes who are copying it are sort of wrestling with where does this story go? Where do we put this particular story. What about the early church fathers? This is interesting. A lot of the early church fathers have commentaries on the Gospels, commentaries on the New Testament, where they just go verse by verse by verse by verse, and they make comments, and they make notes, and they say things. All of the early church fathers, they skip this passage. Like they're going verse by verse by verse all the way through John, and they don't mention anything about it. They just pass over it completely. Internally, let me tell you a few things internally for you to think about. Number one, the vocabulary in this story is different than John's vocabulary. That's kind of hard to see in English, but John didn't write it in English. John wrote it in Greek. And there's 14 out of about 70 words in this story in Greek that John never uses anywhere else. Not in the Gospel of John, not in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, not in the book of Revelation. It's a higher percentage, a much higher percentage than any other story in the Gospel of John. And if you just read from the passage we looked at last week to the passage we look at next week, it makes sense. The story makes perfect sense. Last week we ended off talking about a water pouring ceremony. Next week we're going to talk about a candle lighting ceremony. Both of those things happened at the exact same time at the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you just read straight through it, that's exactly what you read in the Gospel of John. So some of you are like, you're ready. Like you got your hand on the page and you're like, say it. I'll pull it out right now. Don't do it. Because I also want to say this to you. There is good reason to believe in the historicity and the truthfulness of the story. There's very good reason for you to believe that this truly, really happened. That it's not just a fabrication, that nobody snuck it in later, that it really did happen in the life of Jesus. And let me tell you why. Number one, the details fit. We're going to talk this morning about the details of the story Everything you learn in this story is corroborated elsewhere in the New Testament. All of the things you learn, you find elsewhere, even down to the little bitty details. And you can look at Luke 21, 37, that talks about Jesus teaching in the temple at Tabernacles and going out and staying on the Mount of Olives. 
Both of these stories say that. All the details, all the theological truths, they fit. Secondly, some very early church historians mention the story. Like very, very old, very close to the time of the New Testament. I'm not talking about commentaries on the New Testament. I'm just talking about church historians writing about the faith. They mention this story. They make mention of it. It's a very, very, very old story. The church father Augustine, maybe you've heard of Augustine, probably the most influential theologian who has ever lived since the time of the Apostle Paul. Augustine said about 400 years after Jesus was born, the story was original to John. He said it actually got taken out of the manuscripts, and this was his reason. He said the story made Jesus look soft on adultery. It looked like he was giving people a free pass on adultery, and they actually took it out, and that's why it wasn't in the manuscripts. I'm not telling you that's what happened. I'm just telling you what Augustine says. Jerome. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. He knew all the issues associated with the the story. Latin Vulgate is a very old translation, and he chose to include it. He believed that it belonged there. So here's what I'm telling you. I'm just telling you there's an interesting sort of thing you got to wrestle with here. If on the one hand, you look at the evidence and you say, it doesn't look like John wrote it. Looks like someone added it in later. Doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean it doesn't belong there. When we get to the very end of the Gospel of John, it certainly looks like someone other than John wrote the actual ending. So maybe someone else just sort of put this in there. But if John didn't write it, you've got to sort of wrestle with, well, how and why did it get in there? If you think John wrote it, and you think John included it in his original, you've sort of got to wrestle with, well, why is it missing from all the oldest and the best manuscripts where everything else in the New Testament is just spelled out perfectly word for word for word. Nothing's missing except this one story. How is it that it's missing? Here's my personal view, okay? My personal thought on this is that John didn't write it. Someone else actually wrote it. I also think it's a true story. I think it's a real story. I think it really happened and I think it teaches us, it reinforces for us things that we know to be true about Jesus. And it's interesting that when we talk about it and we debate it, we talk about the story or the pericope of the adulterous woman. It's really not a story about her. She's not the main character in this story. And if you look at these verses, whatever you think about them, and you think it's really a story about this woman, you completely miss the point, right? The Gospel of John is not written to tell you about Andrew or Peter or Nicodemus or the woman in Samaria. It's written to tell you about Jesus. And the same thing is true with this story. It's a story about Jesus. Here's the big idea of this passage. Jesus is the wise, sinless, gracious judge. He's the wise, sinless, gracious judge. We're going to read this passage and then we're going to think about some of the pieces of it and what it teaches us about Jesus. So you follow along as I read. This is John chapter 7 verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray together. Father, this morning our desire is to see truth, it's to see Jesus, it's to understand who he is, what he came to accomplish, what he calls us to do and who he calls us to be. Father, I pray that we would not be distracted by secondary, lesser important questions, but that this morning we would fix our eyes on Jesus and that we would see truth about him. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Holiday season is coming up. You're going to spend time more than likely with family and friends and people that you maybe don't see a lot. And when that happens and your family gets together, it'll probably be similar to my family. You can predict the three, four, five, ten stories that are going to be told when everyone gets together. You've heard them a million times. You know what they are right now. But when you get together, there's just some stories that stick with you. Hey, remember the time... When We do this as a nation. We have a group of stories as a nation that are sort of part of our collective consciousness. We do this as families, and you get together around the Thanksgiving table or the Christmas table, and you tell the same old stories over and over and over again. And I would suggest to you that this story from the Gospel of John is one of those stories. It's not to say that other stories in John are not important. It's not to say that they're not interesting or thought-provoking. It's just to say that this is a great story. It's a famous story. It's one that we remember. It's one that when you hear it told or you read it in the Scriptures, you can just picture the scene playing out. All the characters showing up and all the little details that John mentions. This really is a phenomenal story. As you read it, there's a couple of questions that ought to be running through your brain. And as we read it, some of you were, were thinking some of these things. Number one, how did they catch this woman? And I don't want to be, you know, inappropriate, but how did they catch this woman doing what they accused her of doing? Where's the man that she was with? Where is he? Who was he? Was he part of the plan? Did they let him go? Was he in on it the whole time? John doesn't tell us. Why did they put her on public trial? And we read this in hindsight, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and all of these things are going on, but we don't think much about the fact that this was a major celebration in Jerusalem. Thousands, tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of pilgrims there 
There's programs, there's events, there's rituals, there's traditions. Why make such a public spectacle right in the middle of all of it? And why do they ask Jesus for a judgment? They don't think he's a judge. They don't think he knows what he's talking about. They don't think he's been vested with any special authority. And yet they come to Jesus and they ask him to function as judge in this case. One thing I want to be clear about is what the Old Testament says about this specific situation. And I'll put two verses up on the screen. Leviticus 20 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Clear enough? Both. Not the woman, both. They come to Jesus with the woman and they say, the law says that this woman is to be put to death. And if Jesus had wanted to, he could have raised his hand and said, well, that's technically not what it says. Technically, it says both, the woman and the man. Deuteronomy says the same thing. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. These people who bring this woman, they really don't care about Leviticus or Deuteronomy at all. They want everyone to think that they care about it, but they really don't care about it. They also don't care about this woman at all. I want to suggest to you that they also don't care about adultery at all. Their real motives are revealed in verse 6. This they said to test him. They're testing Jesus. Why? So that they might have some charge to bring against him. That's really all that they care about. We want to back Jesus into a corner so that we then have something to accuse him of. If we bring this woman and Jesus says, kill her, stone her, pick up the rocks and get after it, he's exposed as being unkind and uncompassionate. Nobody will follow a man like that. But if he says, don't kill the woman, then we've got him because we'll say, then you don't believe in the Old Testament. You don't believe in the Scriptures because the Scriptures are clear on this point. They're testing Jesus. They're backing Jesus into a corner, and they think they've got him. And Jesus' response is verse 6. He bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And then he says a, a thing or two. And then verse 8, once more he bent down and he wrote in the ground. This is one of the parts of the story we love. Some of you have already come and talked to me about this part of the story with your ideas and your theories. And some of them I think are feasible and good and right. I'm not laughing at them. I'm just saying this is a part of the story that we really get excited about. I don't very frequently have people come to me and say, Hey, I know in three weeks you're going to be preaching on this passage. And I want to tell you what I think it means. Uh, that rarely happens. But on this passage, some of you have come and you said, hey, I know it's coming. We're getting closer. I want to tell you what I think. And I, I'll just put them up on the board. Here's the leading theories. What in the world was Jesus writing in the dirt? Some people think it's Jeremiah 17, 13. It's a passage that talks about God's judgment being poured out on his people and writing the names of his people in the dirt. So some people think Jesus is maybe writing Jeremiah 17, 13, or he's writing the verse out, but it's sort of a fulfillment of that prophecy. Exodus 23, 1. Some people think that's what he wrote. Exodus 23, 1 talks about not associating with a false witness. 
And Jesus was accusing these men of being some sort of false, ill-motived witness. Some people think he was writing the Ten Commandments, one, two, three, four, writing them out, thinking about all the commandments that these men would have broken in the process of trapping this woman and catching her in the act of adultery. Some people think Jesus was writing the woman's name. Did you notice she's not named in the story? She's just a woman. And some people think Jesus is trying to personalize this woman. He's saying to this men, these men, this is a real human being that you're dealing with. You're putting this woman's life at risk for your own agenda, but she's a real person. She has a family. She has people who care about her. Some people flip the script and they say he was writing the names of the accusers, all of the men who brought her. And perhaps as they begin to walk away, he just strikes through each one or wipes it away so that in the end there are no names left in the dirt. Some people say no is a Roman verdict. What the Romans liked to do when they held court is they listened to all the evidence and whoever was in charge would stop, write down their decision, and then they would read it publicly. And so some people say he's sort of following that pattern. Everyone would have been familiar with that. He's writing down what he thinks about it in the dirt, and then he's going to read it later. And some say nothing. Like just doodling. You say, why would he doodle? Why would he write nothing? And they say, he's just stalling for time. Not in the sense that Jesus needs time to think about what he's going to do. But maybe in the sense that Jesus is just stopping the conversation to let the weight of all of it settle in on the men in the, in the circle. Kind of like your mom or your dad, if you come to them and you're complaining or you're griping or you're whining and they don't say anything. They just kind of look at you. And you think, oh, I'm in big trouble now. Say something, Mom. Say something, Dad. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. He's just giving a moment for the heaviness of the situation to settle on everyone. Look, it's fascinating to speculate. There's all sorts of theories, all sorts of suggestions. I'm going to side with James Boyce who says this. I don't know why he wrote on the ground. I don't know. What's more, I don't believe that anyone else does either. Whatever the case, the fact of Christ's writing had no effect on the rulers who rudely continued to press for an answer. One of the sad effects of sin is that it hardens the sinner. I mean, we can argue all day long. What did he write? What could he have been writing? In the end, it made no difference to the men who brought this woman before Jesus. They really weren't interested in listening to Jesus. They really weren't interested in reading what he wrote in the dirt. They had an agenda, and their agenda was, we want Jesus dead. And if we have to sacrifice the life of this woman to make it happen, we are more than willing to do it. This story has a group of men coming to Jesus. And at first glance, you think, there's a woman on trial here. The more you pay attention to it, you realize it's not the woman who's on trial. It's really Jesus who's on trial. They've already found her guilty. They're really trying to put Jesus on trial. But the more you read it and the more you think about it, you realize Jesus really isn't on trial here. Jesus is the judge here. And they don't even recognize it. But he's the one left standing at the end, and he's the one that gives the verdict. And so this morning, very quickly, let's ask this question and try to answer it. 
What does this story teach us about Jesus the judge? Number one, it highlights the wisdom of Jesus. The wisdom of Jesus. His answer is brilliant. Verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He avoids all the possible pitfalls with this statement. If he said killer, they would have said you're uncompassionate. Oh, and by the way, only Rome can give a death sentence. You have now transgressed Rome and we will turn you over to the Roman authorities. He would have been in trouble. If he would have said, no, don't kill her, they would have said, oh, you don't, you don't believe Moses, you don't listen to the Old Testament, you don't care about that, uh, they would have had him. Instead, he just sort of cuts it right down the middle and he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. He doesn't let the woman off the hook and his wisdom is on display and they don't trap him, they don't catch him. It's the same thing that happens about six months later at the Passover. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the Passover. They come with questions to trick him. Jesus, talk to us about divorce. They don't want to talk about divorce. They want to trap Jesus. Jesus, talk to us about paying taxes. They're not interested in economics. They just want to trap Jesus. And each time he answers in a way that they're not able to back him into the corner that they want to back him into. His wisdom is on display throughout the Gospels. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. He talks about the the gospel in our lives, and he says, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what I'm saying to you. You have a decision to make about Jesus. Do you believe he's wise or not? Do you believe Jesus of Nazareth is perfectly wise or don't you? Because what a lot of us want to do is say, oh yeah, Jesus is wise, but when he talks about this, I kind of get uncomfortable. And when he brings up this issue, I'm not quite so sure. You and I don't have that luxury. We don't have that privilege. We don't get to sort of pick and choose when we think Jesus is wise or he's not. Either he's wise or he isn't, and you have a decision to make. Am I going to listen to Jesus? Will you listen to Jesus when he talks about sin? Will you say, Jesus knows what he's talking about when he talks about sin more than the world knows? When Jesus talks about salvation, how a person receives eternal life, will you listen to Jesus or will you listen to the world? When he talks about marriage, when he talks about the Old Testament, when he talks about ethics, when he talks about discipleship, will you listen to Jesus and come away saying, this man is wise, he knows what he's saying, it's true, or will you discount him? This story reminds us Jesus is wise. Second, the story highlights the sinlessness of Jesus. The sinlessness. This woman is guilty of a great sin. No one in the story denies that. In fact, in the Jewish mind at that time, this was one of the three great sins. Many Jewish rabbis had this saying. It was very common in Jesus' day. Every Jew must die before he'll commit idolatry, murder, or adultery. In their minds, those were three, in no way, shape, or form, no matter the consequence, no matter what, you cannot commit those three sins. And they brought this woman, and she's guilty. She never denies it. They have caught her. But she's not the only sinful person in the story, because when you read it and you enter into the story, you realize these men who have brought her before Jesus are wicked, 
wicked, sinful men. Jesus says, let the one of you without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more, he bent down, he wrote in the ground, and they heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. All of the people in the scenario who had committed sin leave, and only Jesus is left, the sinless one, the righteous one, the one who had every right to pick up a stone and put this woman to death. Highlights his sinlessness. You know, you can look at polls of church-going people in the United States. You can look at Pew polls or Gallup polls or any kind of polls that that poll church-going people and ask them what they believe. What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about sin? What do you believe about salvation? Can I tell you a trend that is undeniable? There's a trend. I'm not talking amongst lost people. I'm talking among church-going people. There's a trend in these polls for people to say, I believe Jesus, when he was on the earth, committed sin. Some way, somehow, he said it, he thought it, he felt it, he did it. Something he did crossed the line. He was not sinless. Look, I just want you to know, the Bible could not be more clear on this. Jesus is without sin. Look what Hebrews says. We looked at Hebrews over the summer. Hebrews chapter 4. We don't have a high, a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted like we are yet without sin. Look, when the pollster calls, you've got a decision to make. Am I going to believe the Scriptures or am I going to go with the trend? He's sinless. This is not just an a, a answer you need for a, a pollster. This is not just a, a finer point of theology that we can debate or agree to disagree on. This is vitally important. We read this in the Gospel of John just a few weeks ago, John 1.29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is it that Jesus was able to take our sin? The biblical answer is because he had none. He was sinless. And there's a reminder in this story is these men gather around with this woman who is clearly a sinner and their sin, their conspiracy, their lying, their manipulating of the law is on full display that there is one and only one sinless character in this story. There's only one and one sinless character in the entire biblical story and it's Jesus. Number three, the story highlights his grace. His grace. They drop their stones. They walk away. Jesus is left. He says that he does not condemn this woman. He shows her grace. He gives her the opposite of what she deserves. She's guilty of sin. He had every right to call down judgment on her, and instead he gives her grace. He forgives her, and the story highlights that. Jesus knew with this woman, just like the Samaritan woman in John 4, he knew every sin this woman had ever committed, not just the adultery but all of it. And just like the woman at the well in Samaria, he talks about sin. He doesn't blush in exposing people as sinful. But he's gracious. He gives the opposite of what the woman in Samaria deserved. He gives the opposite of what this adulterous woman deserves. He gives the opposite of what people like you and me deserve. 
And the story highlights his grace. It's why he came. Look at Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope. What are we waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's an appearing of grace, and we're waiting for the appearance of Jesus. And in Paul's mind, as he writes to Titus, grace is not some abstract theological idea. It's not something we just debate about in Sunday school classes or sermons. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And this story, as Jesus shows grace to this woman, reminds us that he is gracious. He is merciful. Last, number four, the story highlights the authority of Jesus. He's the judge. And his authority is on full display. Here's the fascinating part about this story to me. It's that today in our culture, this story gets used as sort of a trump card for why you can't talk about anyone else's sin. Anytime you try to talk about sin that maybe someone else has committed, they may pop off with this line, Well, who are you to throw the first stone? Well, look at you. I guess you don't have any sin. Here you are throwing stones at me. Why don't you wait to throw a stone until you haven't committed any sin? And people sort of reference this story vaguely as if it's some sort of justification to say we can't ever talk about sin anymore. That's the opposite of what the story teaches. The story ends with this strong reminder of Jesus' authority. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. You know what people would say today if you said that to them? Who are you to think that you could or could not condemn me? Who gave you the right to do that? We think we live such autonomous lives, such siloed lives that we're in control of everything about our life, that no one has any authority, your neighbor or your pastor or even Jesus himself, to speak into your life and to say anything about condemnation. This woman could have looked at Jesus and said, who are you? You're not part of the Sanhedrin. You don't hold any title in Israel. You don't have any legal office or authority in Israel. But he did have authority. He's the judge. He's not the one on trial. He's the judge presiding over the trial. And he says in the verdict, I do not condemn you. And then he says this, and from now on, sin no more. Again, people today would hear that and say, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Who are you to tell me what I can and I can't do? And if you don't recognize Jesus as the judge, this makes absolutely no sense, but it made sense to the woman. Because somehow, some way, God is at work in her life, and in this moment, she's looking at Jesus, and she realized, these men don't have you on trial. You're the judge. You're the one who has the power to condemn or not con- to condemn. You're the one who has the power to tell me what I need to do or not do as I leave. Had this woman sinned against Jesus? Sort of an interesting question. I imagine in her mind the answer would have been no. I imagine she would have been ready to admit that she'd sinned against lots of different people. But I imagine in that moment she didn't think that she had ever sinned against Jesus. 
It makes me think of Mark chapter 2 where a group of friends bring a paralytic and they lower him down through the roof in front of Jesus and everyone expects Jesus to just heal him immediately. And do you remember what Jesus says first? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And everyone in the room almost, their heads explode. And they say, the only one who can forgive sin is God. And they're right. They just don't realize that God, the judge, the judge, is sitting in their midst. The same thing is true in this story. Makes you think of David. You remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and he had her husband killed and he confesses his sin to God at the law, the end of a long process. He says this to God, David to God, against you and you only have I sinned. In a sense, that's not true, right? He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against his family, sinned against his children, sinned against his nation, sinned against lots of people, sinned against his army. But he understood something important that while sin has consequences and while it affects everyone around us, it is first and foremost, above all, an offense against God. It's true for David in the Old Testament, it's true for this woman in the New Testament. She's a sinner. And she finds herself in front of Jesus. In her mind, she probably thinks, I've never done anything to wrong this man. But we read the story from this sort of overarching perspective and we realize her sin was against Jesus. It was against the judge. And that means Jesus, as the judge, has the right to condemn or to forgive. And he has the right to tell this woman what to do with her life when she leaves. Look, I'm looking around the room this morning. None of you look like you were drugged here by someone with the intention of us stoning you when you got here. You're all pretty calm, pretty relaxed. None of you seem antsy or afraid. I don't see any rocks piled up in the aisles. None of us really finds ourselves in the situation this woman found ourselves in. But really, we're all in the situation this woman found herself in. You come to a place of worship and you have an encounter with God. We talked about this Wednesday night. You leave better or worse. You leave closer to God or further from God. You come this morning and you think about who Jesus is as it's described in this story, this famous story, this story that we twist and we use for our own agendas. It really has nothing to do with what the story is about at all. This is a story not about a woman, not about can we talk about sin. It's a story about who Jesus is as the judge. My prayer for you is that you know him this morning. Not just some idea of who you think he is, not just something that maybe someone's told you about Jesus, but that you listen to the scriptures and you walk away saying, this is who Jesus is. This is the Jesus that I've got to deal with. This Jesus who is the judge. He has authority over my life. Do you believe that or do you not? you believe that he's wise? Will you take him at face value? When it rubs up against everything our culture says, will you listen to him and say, I'm with Jesus. I'm going to listen to him every time. Will you turn to him for grace, for mercy? Will you acknowledge to him, you deserve to condemn me, but I'm praying that you would forgive me. And I'm trusting in the promises of the gospel that you as the only sinless one, 
died to take my sin. And I believe it. Will you believe it?